Good morning, and welcome to the house of the Lord. Also, those of you listening and watching online this morning, we welcome you also. I am Pastor David Nigro, filling in for Pastor Rick this morning. And if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open to Exodus chapter 3. We will be in verse 14 for this morning's topical, which is titled, I Am. Now, some years ago, National Geographic, they produced a show called The Story of God. And they traveled the world interviewing people in some 22 different countries. And they were asking their thoughts on various religious topics, and one of which was, who is God? Now, as you might imagine, the answers were as various as the countries that they visited to. And the goal, though, I think of this program wasn't really so much to show the differences among people as they were really trying to show what was common among people in the sense that, oh, we all believe in God. Well, this is what the apostate church will seek to do, to unify uh, all of the world's religions uh, under the guise of a unity in faith, regardless of the differences in beliefs. You know, so that the Christian and the Buddhist and the Muslim and the Hindu will all somehow worship together. Well, the problem with this idea of unifying the religions of the world, it is contrary to what God has to say. The God of the universe who says that he and he alone will be worshipped. It's the reason that he called Israel to be separate and the reason that uh, they were to come out from among the pagan nations who worshipped idols. You see, the essence of idolatry is man's defining who God is, what he is like, what his attributes are, and uh, what is it that he expects from man. Idolatrous ideas about God include the atheist who says God doesn't exist, and it includes the agnostic who says he cannot be known. It also includes the, the deist who says that God set things into motion and then disappeared. It even includes the Christian who holds beliefs about God that are contrary to what God has to say about himself in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to spend some time looking at what God has to say about himself. And I I say some time, uh, or I should say some of what God has to say about himself, because we really can't uh, go into all of what God has to say regarding himself because of time. But I think it's critical for every Christian to have a correct understanding of who God is. And and what I mean by that is his character. It is the basis for correctly understanding the doctrines of Scripture and also from keeping us from error. Now, let me add to this also by saying that only knowing some of God's attributes can lead someone to, to have an incorrect view also. And what I mean by that is because it would be out of balance. For instance, I have heard Christians say they don't believe in hell because they say God is love, and therefore he would not send anyone to be punished eternally. But this is contrary to what God has to say about himself, that he is just and he is a righteous judge whose wrath abides upon the sons of disobedience. Now, the New Testament has ushered in the age of grace, and we are grateful for that. But we cannot understand who God is without the Old Testament also. It takes the entirety of Scripture to know who God is. 
You know, when we are asked, uh, do you know who so-and-so is? You know, we can say, yeah, sure, I know who they are. When what we really mean is we can identify who they are, right? We know what they look like, and we can point them out. But do we really know who they are? In order to do that, we would need to know uh, what they are like. In other words, are they kind? Are they forgiving? Are they honest? Uh, those are the things that begin to give to us an understanding about who someone is. These are the attributes of that person, and, and collectively they make up who that person is. Now, we can learn these things uh, by having a personal contact with that person, or we could learn it by the reputation of that person. But when it comes to the attributes of God, we need to rely upon him to, to reveal to us uh, what he is like. In John 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Now, to this point, um, they've been learning directly from Jesus. But in a short while, he will be gone. And he comforts them by telling them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, who will now be the one who teaches them. In John fourteen twenty-five through 26, uh, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So up to this point, Jesus was their teacher, but soon the Holy Spirit will be coming to teach them spiritual things. And this includes things about God. Paul writes this in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.11. He says, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of God? Excuse me, except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So if you want to correctly understand who God is, you need to hear from him. In Matthew sixteen thirteen through 17, Jesus comes into the region of Caesarea, excuse me, Caesarea uh, Philippi. And he asks his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and he said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So again, we see here in the scriptures that we're just dependent on God to tell us who he is, to identify himself to us. In the Old Testament, we have an example of this when Moses, he's commissioned by God to go to Pharaoh on behalf of Israel. And he correctly asks God, who shall I say sent me? In this encounter, if you remember Moses, he's been in the desert 40 years now, essentially tending sheep. And God reveals himself to him, asking him now to go, commanding him now to go. And here's what we read in Exodus 3.13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And so in verse 14, we read, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent to you. 
So the self-existent one is what he is saying. God is identifying himself as the one who has no beginning. He has no point of origin. He has simply always been. And it is certainly the one thing that distinguishes him from everyone else. He has always existed. Every other being has come into existence through causation, but not God. God has always been. And so for every other creature, they would not exist without their creator, but not so with God. He required no one. We read this in Colossians 1, 15 through 18. This is in reference to Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And then in John eight fifty seven and 58, we read that, Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You know, God could have chosen a different way to identify himself to Israel, but instead he, he chose the self-existent one. And I, and I believe because it eliminates every other false and created God. And it points directly to him as the creator of the universe. You know, as a side note, no matter how hard they try, the evolutionist, they can't explain how the raw materials of the universe came to be. They'll tell you that the universe exploded into existence. And so, um, I find that this is contrary to every other observation of life. But they will tell you that, that somehow out of this explosion comes perfect order. Now, I've blown some things up in my time. And I will tell you, it didn't create anything but a mess. Yet for them, somehow, perfect order is the result. But even if you choose to believe them, and I don't, uh, you have to ask them, well, then, where do these raw materials come from? They cannot answer that because it can only be answered by the fact that someone who pre-existed the universe had to put it there. Being self-existent is a singularly uh, unique attribute of God. But you can't define God completely uh, by describing his attributes. I think while it, they help us to understand who he is and, and what he is like, they don't necessarily tell us everything. They're simply what he has declared is true of himself to us, and I think it's unlikely that God has given us everything about who he is. And I say that uh, in that he's given us enough for us to know a good deal about him. But I think God being infinite is far greater than perhaps we can even understand and I will stress to you that the Bible is the only source of, of who God is. If you want to know him, if you want to know what he is like, the scriptures are the only place that you can go. You can't go to a Christian bookstore and, and find a bestseller to tell you who God is unless it matches scripture. Second Timothy 3.16, and I remind you of this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. 
Now, because the attributes of God are, are such a large subject, we're not going to cover all of them this morning. I just can't do it. It's not enough time. I would like to. So I'm going to have to plan to do a part two. And I hope, though, that uh, when we get done today, uh, what we will cover will convey to all of you just how truly awesome God is. To start with, he is transcendent, which means that he transcends all that we know. He, he's far and above and beyond that which we know or, or can even conceive. In Psalm 113, 4 through 6, we read that the Lord is high above all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heavens and in the earth? The fact that, that he is eternal is by itself, I think, more than finite beings can grasp. Just that idea alone. You know, it's believed that the universe is, uh, well, it doesn't have an end. They believe that it it just continues. Now, as you begin to to try to understand that, to get your mind around that, it just, it doesn't work. And then you say, well, okay, it's got to end. But then you say, okay, well, there's an end. What's on the other side of that? And you can't answer that question. And so I think, you know, when, when we look at things that, that deal with what is beyond finite, we, we just can't grasp it as hard as we try. And so it makes it somewhat difficult for us, I think, to, to really understand our God in that sense. And it just simply mystifies us. You know, also consider this. Our language is incapable of expressing really the true greatness of God in a, in a sense of describing him. You know, it leaves us to describe him with what words we, we have available. Now, for instance, um, listening to Paul, and this is the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians twelve two through 4, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows, Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And so the Apostle Paul, he got a glimpse of heaven. This was an experience that he didn't really fully understand as he talks about. I don't know if it was in the body, out of the body. I'm not really sure. God knows. But... I did experience this, and I caught a glimpse of heaven. And while I was there, I heard things and no doubt saw things in in this that he just couldn't express. He says it wasn't lawful. What he means is he he can't do it justice. He can't describe what he heard, what he saw, and do it justice. And so our language even falls short of the ability to really describe how great and how awesome our God is. This isn't unlike, I think, the Apostle John, who in the island of Patmos, he receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in that, as he sees these things being revealed to him, he does the very best he can to describe them. And yet, when he does so, as, as you read through the, it's an apocalyptic writing, as you read through this, it, it is him trying to use things that he can relate to, to describe something that's not really possible to describe accurately. And so he gives us what he can. And so it is, I think, so with God. 
we do the very best we can to describe him with the language we have, which is limited, and with the fact that we are finite beings and we have limitations in that as well. Our God is awesome. He transcends to the point there is just no there's no comparison to him. You know, when we describe some someone, we do it in terms of things that uh, we can relate to, right? So if if I say uh, someone is short, it's because we know what tall is. Or if they have light hair, it's, it's because you know we know what dark hair is, or maybe no hair. Um, but the the point is that you know it it is always compared to something else, right? It's what gives to us an understanding of what it is that's being described. But how does that work with God? He's incomparable. Really, we, we fail to adequately, I think, describe him. You know, so, so when we say things like God is just, as compared to what? Our understanding of justice, which is far short of what perfect justice is. God is capable of perfect justice. And we, we know that. Yet we really can't understand what that is. So the best what we can do is understanding what we believe justice to be to say that God is just. But I think he is far greater than that. We have no other form of measurement except that which we know. So in that case, when it comes to justice, the best I think we can do is acknowledge that perfect justice exists, but it's with God. And really not with us. Being transcendent means that he is without an equal. So he's he's equally above the archangel as he is the single cell creature. And so you look at the archangel, which is a magnificent creature, and you look at the amoeba, and you say, well, there's really no comparison. I grant you that. But in the same sense, there is no comparison between God and that archangel. There's just no comparison. The distance between them is just as equal as the single-cell creature. It is irrelevant because God has no comparison. There is none like him. In 1 Chronicles 29.11, we read this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. And then in Isaiah 59, 55, 9, we read this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, sometimes God is silent about a thing. You'll go to him and you'll ask him to tell you something that you feel you need to know, and he's silent. And sometimes I wonder it's simply because how does he explain it to you? Perhaps what he would have to say to you is so far above what you would understand it. He isn't going to to bother telling you. It's kind of like teaching a three-year-old calculus. Why bother, right? It just wouldn't matter. And so perhaps there are times where God says, you know, it it, it wouldn't make sense for me to tell you. And so I think for us uh, to understand that, Uh, He is just unlike us in so many ways, so far above who we are. That is our God. He is eternal, which means that uh, God is, has always been, and will always be. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. So it stands to reason, you know, that no one who has, or no, that someone who has no beginning also has no end. That's who God is. And so, you know, only he can promise things of eternity. So we read here in Daniel 12, 2, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Only God can say that because only God is eternal. I mean, you could say, well, you know, are, are we, we are going to live for eternity. Yeah, but you haven't been living for eternity. Only he has. There's the difference. Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. An Old, an old Testament and a New Testament example of God's eternal existence. God exists outside of time. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And now this is the reason that God is the only true source of prophecy. You know, Second Peter, Peter writes this, this is Second uh, Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. You know, so if you have someone who claims to have a private interpretation of either what God has said or something that they say God has said that you can't find in Scripture, well, you know that they're lying. The cults do this all the time. Joseph Smith, who he claimed to have uh, received revelations from the angel Moroni, and thereby he writes the Book of Mormon, beginning a religion, a cult that is sending millions to hell. The Bible, you need to know, stands apart from every other document on earth in terms of prophecy alone. There is no other book that has what the Bible has in it. Prophetically speaking, there are are over 2,000 prophecies in the scripture, 300 of which were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And probably two-thirds of that remaining 2,000 that have been fulfilled with the remaining still to be fulfilled. Now, you need to understand something about this. The mathematical probabilities of just a handful of those prophecies being coincidentally fulfilled and not divinely fulfilled is so astronomically high that you can't, and I cannot fathom the numbers. They're exponential numbers. They are huge. With just a few of them, three of them, will begin to, to set numbers of probability into place where it's staggering. Take thousands of them, and it is so huge you can't get your mind around it. But there are those who will explain that away, saying there's some other reason for this. I don't think so. And this is what the Bible has within it. Because only God is the one who's capable of this. He's capable of telling the end from the beginning. And there is none other. Well, God being that he exists outside of time, you know, it's, it's also 
the reason that he sees us positionally already with him. He sees us as a finished product. His poema, his workmanship. We are a finished product covered in the blood of Christ because as God looks upon us, he sees us in that finished state. Now, we don't really understand that. But because God exists out of time, he can do that and chooses to do it, to see us in that finished state. Now, you know, the past, present, and future all happening at the same time, uh, it's, it's difficult for us to understand. In human terms, we would say that it's, it's contemporaneous. Well, I think a way in which for us to perhaps visualize at least a little bit of what it is to be outside of time would be this. Imagine time as, as being linear, as if a timeline. And as you look at this line, it, it's thousands of miles long, and you're standing on one point in that line. And as you stand there, you can only see just a little bit around you. That would be the present. But if I took you and I elevated you thousands of feet above that line, you begin to see now further in distance, perhaps to the beginning and to the end of that line. And so I think that's what it is like, in a sense, to be outside of time, that you can see all of it at one time. And it is really meaningless to talk about things from the perspective of past, present, and future. Well, God is holy, and he tells us this. In Leviticus 11.45, he says, For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness is perhaps best described as uh, uh, just absolute purity and perfection. I think it's very difficult for us to understand that because we've never been exposed to that. Not physically, not spiritually. We don't understand that absolute purity. But that is what it is. And, you know, being in a sinful state, living in a sinful world, we just can't catch a glimpse of that. Not in its truest sense. Now, this is the reason that God will have to purify us and make us perfect to be able to be in his presence. And so one day when we are glorified, we will be able to do just that, to be in his presence like that. Now, I'll give to you an example, Moses, again. This is um, Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. And Moses would like God to show himself to him. And so he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, God speaking, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. And you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, While my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so God grants to Moses just a glimpse of him enough that he can have a sense of God's greatness, but he cannot see him in his full glory. 
Because if he did so, he would not live. And as I said, in our sinful state, it's just not possible for us. In Hebrews 12.29, we read that, For our God is a consuming fire. You know, so in a, in a present state, sinful man, if he was to dwell in the presence of God, would just be consumed. God, not, he needs to hold back some of himself for us to be able to, to see him. And so when, when Jesus came, he had to shed his glory in order to be among men. He was not able to be who he was in full without that being something that would cause us to be unable to be in his presence. You know, just man catching a glimpse of God's perfection, of his holiness, it it causes an immediate reaction to our own sin, to seeing ourselves as sinners. And we read that in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his, in his hand a live cold, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, <clears throat> this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. You know, sin can't enter heaven and remain there in the presence of God. There must be a purification that takes place. And this is why you must be purified by the blood of Christ in order to be in the presence of God for eternity. And aren't we grateful that God has done that for us through Jesus? Now, God is omnipotent, which is a fancy word for saying he's all-powerful. Revelation 19.6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, it isn't that God is more powerful than any other being in the universe, but really rather that he possesses all of the power in the universe. So in other words, all power that exists really is derived from him. Yet, even though it comes from him, it never diminishes anything of him, so that as power goes forth from God, he is just as powerful as before it left him. It is unlike anything we can really, I think, relate it to. We think of power, we think of, I don't know, let's, let's use a battery. So you, you have a battery, it's fully charged, you take power from it, well, it's not fully charged anymore. We all have phones, right? We know what we need to do. They get to that point, low battery, oh, got to stick them in the wall and charge them up again. Not so with God. There is no diminishing of his power. It is infinite. And there's no such thing as easy or hard as a result of that. Those are terms that uh, only 
they really only fit someone who does not have omnipotence. It doesn't apply to God. When he spoke creation into existence, it was really simply that easy for him to do it. And when the Bible says that he, he rested on the, third, on the seventh day, it, it's, it's really only meaning he, he was finished. It's not that he's tired and he needed to rest. It just was done. And so he didn't need to do anything more. You know, in Matthew nineteen twenty six, Jesus looked at them and he said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You know, if you've been a recipient or a witness to a miracle, you've seen God's power at work. And it is amazing to see. But, you know, power, it must go along with authority because authority is an idea incapable of being carried out unless you have the power to do it. And so, you know, as a police officer, you can have the authority to arrest somebody, but if you don't have the ability, capability to do it, you can't carry out the arrest. This is simply how it works. So for God, it isn't just that he has power, but he also has authority to do what he wills. And in fact, to do what he has promised, which I think is critical for us to understand. Now, God is also omniscient, which is to say that he knows all things. In 1 John 3.20, we read, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. So it means that God possesses all knowledge. You can't really, you just don't learn anything new. It also means that he never has a question. He never wonders what to do next or ever has the thought, what if? These are not things that God is capable of. He never forgets anything. And so he retains all knowledge for all eternity. You know, some Christians, I think, uh, mistakenly believe that when Christ came to earth as a man, he did so so he could better identify what it was like to be a man. Well, that's not, that's not accurate. God knows fully what it is to be a man. He came to earth for our sake, one, obviously, because to go to the cross allowed us to be saved. But also, in his coming, it gave to us the ability to see the Father. As we watched Jesus, as we look at his ministry, we get to see the Father. And I think it also is such that, you know, his coming allowed him to minister to us just in the fact that we were able to see that he was experiencing the things that we experience. Not that he needed that to understand those things. We needed that. We needed to see that that Christ suffered, that he was tempted, that he experienced those things that we as mankind experience. Hebrews 2.18 says, For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Not because he learned something new, but because we saw that. We saw the Lord go through those things. And that is how it ministers to us. Now, because he's all-knowing, Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. 
So there's, there's really no secrets with God, which is kind of a scary thing when you think about it. You know, God sees everything. There is nothing. You can hide from everybody else, but you, you just cannot hide from him. He sees it all. And it's said that a man's reputation is what he is before other men. But his character is what he is before God. When no one else is looking. I think one of the favorite lies of the devil is, you know, no one's ever going to know. Oh, really? Well, God knows, and that's enough. But in this, you know, perfect knowledge allows God to be a perfect judge, too. Nothing is missed. It's frustrating to look around and you see things and you say, why isn't this being dealt with? And are they ever going to give an account for that? the things that you see being done, the evil that is done in this world? And the fact is, yes. Yes, they will. Because God sees it all, and he forgets nothing. He is and always will be the perfect judge. God is sovereign. Daniel 4, 34-35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The sovereignty of God includes all of God's power and authority, which has been given to, to Jesus, the scriptures tell us. And so, God has the power to do anything he wills and the authority to do it. Now, have you been familiar with the statement that everybody has to answer to somebody, right? But it's not so with God. Being sovereign means that he answers to no one, except to himself, because he cannot deny who he is, but he answers to no one. In Daniel 2.21, we read, And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So, really, no one has authority apart from God giving it to them. He is sovereign. And in the affairs of men, there is no one who has authority unless God has given it to him. Psalm 75, 7, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. It's God's prerogative to do so. You know, and sometimes as you look at leaders in the world, you wonder, how come God allows that? And I would go back to, I don't know. He does. His reasons are such that he doesn't feel it necessary to explain it to us. But because I know his character, I can trust in that. And it helps greatly, I think, in understanding God's character to be able to trust him. When you don't have answers, it isn't blind faith. I know who he is. I know what he is like. And I know and I trust him as a result of that. That is different from the idea of just saying, well, you know, it's just blindly following after someone. Not so. I don't see it that way at all. Now, being sovereign does not mean that God just simply does whatever he wants in this sense. He can't lie because he's truth. 
He can't sin because he is holy and he cannot overlook sin because he is just. He can't break his promises because he is faithful. So you see, there are things about God that that will be, if you will, impossible for him to go against. He can't deny who he is. There are these things about him that are inherently who he is. And it's not going to be such that, well, today I'm just and tomorrow I'm not. It doesn't work that way with God. He cannot deny himself. And so I think this is huge for us. It means that, you know, he can't break his promises because he's faithful, right? How important is that to us? Which brings us really to to the next thing, which is that God is immutable, which means he doesn't change. He's always the same. Now, I take great comfort in that. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And then Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, how important is that? To know that, you know, God isn't subject to moods. You ever work for somebody who you don't know what they're going to be like when you get to work? It's terrible. I mean, one day they're all happy and go lucky and it's great. And the next day you roll in and they're just terrible. And then you're stuck with, oh, great, right? I mean, so every day you go in wondering, it's a roll of the dice, you know, what are they going to be like? And so God's not like that. There isn't that shadow of turning with him. There isn't, you know, today he's one way, tomorrow he's another. And aren't we grateful for that? Today I love you, tomorrow I don't. Not so with him. So he never changes. He doesn't take a new position on something. So that, well, while we do, right? I mean, I've done that. I think about something and I say, yep, yeah, that's that's where I stand on this. Then tomorrow I've thought about it some more. No, that's not where I stand. I stand over here now. And I mean, we do that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's it's natural for us. I mean... But God doesn't do that. When he says something, it stands. He doesn't take a new position. Well, it also means that in his attributes, they are forever. They do not change. So God doesn't get older. He doesn't get weaker. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't get bored. None of those things. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself, the scriptures tell us. So simply put, God doesn't change. His promises stand. And this means that uh, everything that God has said in his word, we can trust. And that is an assurance to me. Because that's where my salvation is. It is in God's promise to me. So that when, when we read things like, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That stands forever. God said it, he meant it, and it is eternal. Because he doesn't change. Or Romans ten thirteen, Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. That doesn't change with him. He stands by what he has said. And this is who he is. He can't change. He can't deny himself. And I take great comfort in that this morning. I hope you do too. 
There's a lot more to speak of about the Lord, um, a lot more. But perhaps in the next session, we'll cover things like his love, his wrath, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, and much more about who our God is. But for now, I will close with this verse this morning. This is from 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, uh, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Let's pray. Father, indeed you are awesome. And uh, we are so thankful that, uh, Lord, we can look to the scriptures to understand who you are and just how awesome you are. We thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the salvation we have because of Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we ask a blessing upon all of us here, Lord. May we strive to learn more about you, to know you better, and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.